James concludes his epistle by addressing three critical issues. Taking frivolous and false vows in chapter 5, verse 12, praying for one another's needs in chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, and teaching sinning believers in chapter 5, 19 to 20. In addressing the issue of praying for one another's needs, James focuses specifically upon knowing when to pray for one another. Paul addressed this issue when he exhorted believers to pray at all times, Ephesians 6.18, and to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. For James, believers are to pray in three particular times, times of suffering, times of sickness, and times of sin. Uniquely, James uses three different terms for prayer tailored to the particular time, prosukomai, uke, and deasis. Prasukomai denotes prayers or supplications made to obtain good or avert evil in times of suffering. Uke is a prayer that expresses a wish or desire in times of sickness. Deasis describes prayer as an urgent plea or supplication in times of sin. Now before delving into the knowing when to pray, it would be beneficial to address the issue of how to pray. While much ink has been spilled on how to pray, the simplest and most effective answer is found in Scripture, particularly in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 9-13 is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. However, it would be better titled as the Lord's Model for Prayer. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus said, Pray then in this way. That is, he provided this prayer to us as a model, pattern, or outline for how to pray. He never intended it to be repeated as a mantra. As stated in Matthew 6, 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Using the Lord's model for prayer, we should note its brevity. Prayers do not need to be wordy. Jesus warned to not be like the Gentiles who suppose that they will be heard for their many words. As well, following the Lord's model for prayer, prayer should contain seven elements. First, prayer must contain a relational element, our Father who is in heaven. Two, prayer must contain a reverential element, hallowed be your name. Three, prayer must contain a submissive element. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Four, prayer must contain a dependent element. Give us this day our daily bread. Five, prayer must contain a penitent element. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Six, prayer must contain a protective element. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And number seven, prayer must contain a doxological element. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So again, prayer must contain a relational element, a reverential element, a submissive element, a dependent element, a penitent element, a protective element, and a doxological element. As well, as we look at this model, we can note that prayer must focus first on God's interest and secondarily on our own self-interest. In the book Alone with God, John MacArthur states that the Lord's model for prayer shows the threefold purpose of prayer, to hallow God's name, usher in His kingdom, and to do His will. 
And it details our present provision, daily bread, past pardon, forgiveness of sins, and future protection, safety from temptation. Now James' use of the Sermon on the Mount as his source material leaves no doubt that he and his readers were familiar with the Lord's model for prayer. That James makes no reference to it underscores the fact that the recipients of his letter knew how to pray. What James does address is knowing when to pray. Theologically, his readers understood prayer, but practically, they suffered from a lack of prayer. And so too, many believers today can talk about prayer, but all too infrequently actually do the hard work of praying. Now regarding when to pray, there are three times to pray. In times of suffering, in times of sickness, and in times of sin. We'll begin with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Regarding when to pray, we must pray in times of suffering. Notice that James asks, is anyone among you suffering? Now the term suffering there, kakapatheo, means to suffer from affliction or hardship. James previously used this term to describe the sufferings of the prophets in verse 10 of chapter 5. Paul suffered hardships due to preaching the gospel and exhorted Timothy to endure hardships in his ministry. 2 Timothy 2, 8-9 According to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, kakapatheo, even to imprisonment. 2 Timothy 4, 5 But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, kakapatheo, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Based on what James wrote, how many of his readers suffered injustice and oppression, the question of whether anyone was suffering demands an affirmative. Yes, they are suffering. And to each one who suffers, James says, he must pray. Now the verb must pray, prasukamai, refers to those petitions made to obtain good or avert evil in times of suffering. This is the most common term in the New Testament for prayer. The verb is in the present tense, denoting the idea of continually petitioning God to relieve our suffering or remove our trials. That it is imperative applies that James is not offering a mere suggestion. In times of suffering, we as believers must pray. Now the command to pray is heightened by his, James's previous admonitions to suffering believers. First, James admonished suffering believers to pray for wisdom to patiently endure. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. James 1, 5 and 6. Prayer for wisdom to endure suffering was conditioned upon asking in faith and without doubting. Second, James admonished suffering believers to be patient, strengthen your hearts, and do not complain. Instead of losing your temper, displaying uncontrolled emotions, or murmuring wickedly, believers are to petition God to remove the suffering from their life. As an aside, if you're praying to God for relief, but you're not heeding the commands to be patient, strengthen your heart, and not complain, I've got news for you. Do not expect God to hear or answer your prayer. Prayers to endure suffering are conditioned upon controlling your temper, controlling your emotions, and not murmuring wickedly. As well, it must be stated that while prayer does not always remove the problem, it, does, it always does provide the grace to endure. 
As an example of such prayer, consider Paul. Paul suffered from what he referred to as a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 2 Corinthians 12.7 In response he said, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. 2 Corinthians 12.8 You see, Paul did what James commanded in times of suffering. He prayed. Nonetheless, God in his infinite wisdom saw fit not to remove Paul's suffering. God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You see, instead of removing the problem, God provided Paul grace to endure the hardship. Was God being capricious? No. He was using Paul's weakness as a means of demonstrating Christ's power in Paul's life. That is, through Christ, Paul was emotionally and mentally strengthened to endure the hardship. Prayer did not remove Paul's suffering, but instead graced him with the power to endure it. And so too, when we pray in the midst of suffering, God will grant us the same grace to patiently endure. As Paul said in Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now following up on the first question, James asks, is anyone cheerful? While the question appears to be in direct opposition to the first, the term cheerful implies that it's not in opposition. The verb cheerful, uthamio, means to be encouraged and denotes an inward state that has nothing to do with outward circumstances. After being shipwrecked and all hope of rescue ebbing away, Paul said to his fellow castaways, I urge you to keep up your courage. Uthamio, Acts 27-22. The verb translated as keep up your courage is the same as cheerful. Uthamio. In other words, despite their circumstances, Paul encouraged the others to have peace of mind. Hence, when James refers to those who are cheerful, he is not referring to those free of problems, but instead to those who had peace of mind amid their suffering. The question implies that some who suffered had prayed, received God's grace, and were now experiencing peace of mind. James then admonishes them to sing praises. The verb to sing praises, pasalo, means to pluck a stringed instrument. In the ancient world, stringed instruments were used to accompany worshipers in their praises to their gods. Hence, the verb pasalo came to represent those songs of praise to God accompanied by an instrument otherwise known as psalms. When the verb psalo is used in the New Testament, it conveys the idea of singing praise to God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians three sixteen, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Thus, James admonishes suffering believers to pray, and when God answers those prayers, believers are to sing praises to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing i.e. sing praises with the Spirit, and I will sing, sing praises 
with the mind also. The verb to sing praises is in the present tense, denoting that this praise is to be continual and ongoing. As much as someone continually petitions God for grace, so should they continually praise Him. How about you? You're quick to pray, but are you just as quick to praise God when He answers the prayer? As well, it's an, it is imperative, meaning that it's not optional. When we fail to praise God for answered prayers, we sin. Believer, ask yourself, in times of suffering, what do you do? Do you ask God for wisdom? Do you ask in faith without doubting? Or are you losing your temper, losing your control of your emotions, and murmuring wickedly? The Bible says in times of suffering, we're to pray. And when God answers that prayer, we're to praise Him. Now let's look at verses 14 to 15. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. See, believers must not only pray in times of suffering, but we are also to pray in times of sickness. James asks, Is anyone among you sick? The verb sick, asthineo, has a range of meanings, such as being powerless, weak, feeble, or sick. As well, it can be applied to either physical illness or spiritual weakness. How is James using this verb, though? Is he referring to physical illness or spiritual weakness? The question can be answered by determining how the verb asthenio is used elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in those texts that heavily influenced James' theology. Without a doubt, James' theology was profoundly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. An examination of the Gospel of Matthew shows that asthenio always refers to a physical illness. Matthew 10.8, heal the sick, asthenio. Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Matthew 25, 36, Naked you clothed me, I was sick, asthenio, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Furthermore, by studying the other gospel accounts, asthenio was used to describe the sick as being incapacitated, unable to work, and even close to death. Luke chapter 4 and verse 40. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick, asthenio, with various diseases, brought them to him. John 11, verse 1 and 14, Now a certain man was sick, Astheneo, Lazarus of Bethany. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now James admonishes the sick that they must call for the elders of the church. The verb must call for, proskaleo, is in the middle voice indicating that the one who is sick requests someone else to come to them to perform a specific task. The verb is also imperative, denoting that it is the responsibility of the sick to call for the elders to come. What if the person's too sick to do it? If that is the case, the responsibility falls upon the caregivers. When the sick initiate the call to come, the elders answer the call and visit the sick ones. James 5.14, by the way, is the first time James refers to the church. The term church, ecclesia, refers to an assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership. Whereas the synagogue in James 2.2 describes the place where believers met for worship, 
the church depicts the people who assemble. And as modern believers, we need to understand that the church is not a building, but rather a group of people. The church can be the church wherever or whenever God's people assemble. As well, individually, each and every one of you as a believer can act as the church when you minister to one another regardless of where you may be. Now, who are the elders of the church? To answer that question, consider where the term elder originated. In the synagogue, the synagogue was overseen by elders or presbyteros, spiritually mature people appointed to direct or administrate. Now, since the early church was primarily Jewish, it was natural to bring over the administrational structure of the synagogue that had been in place for generations. Thus, throughout Acts and the Epistle, the term elders began to refer to the church leaders. You see, each of the synagogue elders segued into the offices of the church elders. The elders are composed of the bishop, pastor teachers, deacons, deaconesses, apostles, i.e. missionaries, prophets, i.e. teachers, and evangelists or apologists. They function under Jesus to lead the church. Under that divine authority, some elders are ruling elders, some teaching elders, and others traveling elders. And frequently there will be crossover between the various types of elders. James notes here that the elders have a twofold responsibility to the sick. Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The verb pray, prosukamai, are prayers or supplications made to obtain good or avert evil in times of suffering. Now, such prayer expresses two things. One, it expresses that the one who is sick is suffering. And two, it expresses that the elders are petitioning God to deliver the sick one from their suffering. Notice as well the phrase over him, ep alton. It denotes the elders' posture as they pray. In other words, they're to be extending their hands over the sick individual. It would be similar to laying hands on someone as one prays for them. Matthew 19.13 Then some children were brought to Jesus so that he might lay hands on them and pray. Now besides praying over the sick, the elders are to anoint them with oil. The verb anointing, alepho, is a general term for rubbing or covering someone with either oil or ointment. Now, the term alepho is not to be confused with the verb creo, which denotes an anointing that sets someone apart for sacred or religious duties. This anointing is not for religious purposes. As well, the verb alepho, anointing, is in the aorist tense, denoting that this anointing coincides with the prayer. Now, in the ancient Near East, olive oil was commonly used medicinally as a hygienic to tend to various types of wounds. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6, From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Luke 10, 34, And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Thus, anointing the sick with oil refers to treating the sick with medicine. Mark 6.13 records that the apostles were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Hence, James' admonition was that the elders come alongside the sick to pray for them and give them medicine when requested. 
Notice the phrase in the name of the Lord. This refers to something done under the Lord's authority. That is, the Lord authorized, listen very carefully, the Lord authorized both prayer and medicine as a means by which he heals the sick. Make note here that medicine and prayer are not opposed. And those who refuse to take medicine because they think it's unbiblical, such as the Christian science cult and other Christian quacks, are rejecting divinely authorized means of healing. Now returning to the prayer for the sick, James says that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. See, there are two results of prayer for the sick that must be considered. However, before considering those results, we must consider the phrase, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The term prayer here, uke, denotes a prayer that expresses a wish or desire for someone in times of sickness. When praying over the sick, the elders express their desire that God would heal them. However, note that the prayer is to be offered in faith. In the Greek text, there's an article before faith, taste pistios. Hence the phrase reads, the prayer of the faith. Now the prayer offered in faith communicates confident trust in God to act. And note here that it is not the faith of the sick, but the faith of the elders. In other words, when the elders pray, they must pray believing that God will answer, James 1.6 but he must ask in faith without any doubting. Now what does that do to a lot of these quote-unquote faith healers who, when they go to heal someone and they're not healed, well, they didn't have enough faith? Now James would say, no, you didn't have enough faith. The first result of praying for the sick is that the Lord will restore the one who is sick. Now the verb restore here, zozo, means to make whole or deliver from sickness. However, the verb sick in verse 15 is different from verse 14. In verse 14, the verb sick, asthaneo, referred to physical illness. Here, the verb is kamno, denoting the weariness or fatigue associated with the illness. That is, God delivers them from the weariness or fatigue of their illness, not necessarily that he delivers them from their illness. Now, God is certainly able to heal anyone from any manner of disease. However, sometimes in His infinite will, God chooses not to heal. At the least, James says, when the elders pray in faith, God will ease the weariness of those suffering from illness. Again, what is seen here is similar to what is promised to those suffering in verse 13. God does not always remove the suffering, but promises to give the grace to endure the suffering. Now, the second result of praying for the sick is that the Lord will raise him up. The verb will raise, agiro, means either to restore to health or be restored to life. Likely, James has both meanings in view. On the one hand, God could restore the sick person to health when the elders pray in faith. On the other hand, God may choose to allow the sick to die in his infinite wisdom. However, God still answers the prayer because when believers die, he immediately brings them into his presence where they will await a future day of physical resurrection with a body free from disease. And so, believers, we must pray for the sick, and we must believe that God can heal. 
However, once you've expressed your desires, you must step back and allow God to answer in His time and way, understanding that His time and ways are far better than ours. As Jesus taught in His model prayer, your will be done, Matthew 6.10. Indeed, He set the example for believers to follow. In Luke 22.42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So believers, we must not only pray in times of suffering and sickness, but let's look at verse 15 to 18. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Again, we must not just pray in times of suffering and sickness. We must pray in times of sinning. James makes an interesting statement at the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In other words, if the sickness is the result of sin, it will be forgiven. That is not to say, listen very carefully, that is not to say that all sickness is the result of sin. Again, consider Job whose sickness was not the result of sin, but instead the buffeting of Satan. As well, Jesus told the disciples that the blind man was not blind because of sin, but instead that he, that is Jesus, might be glorified. John 9, 3. Jesus answered, It was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That said... James implies that there are occasions where sickness is the direct result of sin. 1 Corinthians 11.30 For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number of sleep, i.e. are dead. So my advice is this. If you are sick, examine yourself. Is it the result of sin? Or is it the result of God working His goodwill in your life? Now James says, if he has committed sin, the verb committed Poyeo means to perform or carry out an act. In this case, these believers have performed sin. The verbs in the perfect tense implying that these believers repeatedly committed the same sins and as such are presently sick due to their sin. So if the sickness is related to sin, then the elders should pray for healing and the individual's forgiveness. Notice the verb will be forgiven. Afeme means to send away. It is a legal term for pardoning someone of a crime. Again, remember the context. The sick individual requests the elders to come and pray for them. When the elders pray in faith for the sinning believer's forgiveness, God will pardon them and remove their guilt. Now, because sin leads to sickness, or can lead to sickness, James urges believers to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, confession of sin is rooted in God's law. Leviticus 5.5 5. It shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Numbers 5, 7, he shall confess his sins, which he has committed. Now, the verb confess here, exomologio, means to agree or concur with something. That is, when one confesses their sins, they're not merely admitting to sin, but instead agreeing with God regarding their sin. Well, how does God view sin? In the Old Testament, he calls it an abominable act which he hates, Deuteronomy twelve thirty one. Thus, to confess sin means that we as believers view our sin as an abomination before God, and like God, 
We hate our sin. Instead of covering up it, our sin, or justifying it, or ignoring it, we must admit it and agree with God concerning it. Believer, what do you do with your sin? Are you justifying it? Are you ignoring it? Are you covering it up? Or are you admitting it and agreeing with God about it? James next exhorts us to confess our sins to one another. Does that admonition imply that we're to tell every sin we commit to everyone else, other, every other believer? In short, no. The statement conveys that when a believer is struggling with sin, they confess it to another believer for prayer. Hence, James' second admonition to pray for one another. This verb pray, ukomai, denotes a prayer that expresses a wish or desire for someone who is sinning. The idea is that other believers would express to God their desire that their fellow believer would be victorious over sin, which they struggle with. Note that James shifts his focus from the elders praying to all believers praying. This shift indicates that we all have a responsibility to pray for each other. So if a believer is struggling in sin, they should seek out an elder or another spiritually mature believer in whom they can confide. Such one should be trustworthy. Listen, a believer who is a busybody or gossip is not the person you want to confide in. Confiding your struggles or sins with another trustworthy believer is what it means to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. If you're unsure of that meaning, you only need to read Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the purpose of praying for sinning believers is that they may be healed. The verb healed, iomai, means to be freed from something. The verb can refer to healing from disease, but is commonly used metaphorically to being freed from sin. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now listen, friends, great care and caution needs to be used in dealing with this term, iomai. When Isaiah says that believers are healed by Christ's wounds, he does not mean that his wound heal from disease, but instead that they set us free from sin. Now by praying for sinning believers, they will be freed from their sins. How much less sin would there be in the church if we actively prayed for one another to be victorious over sin? I'll tell you this, there'd be less resentment, less grudges, and less bitterness for starters. Sadly, believers are too quick to gossip with others about another sin instead of praying to God for them. And I challenge you to beware, I warn you rather, beware of justifying your gossip with the age-old excuse of merely asking others to pray. Now, if anyone doubts the importance of praying for one another, particularly in times of sin, James declares the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Here the term prayer, deasis, describes in prayer as an urgent plea or supplication in times of sin. That definition supports that James is countering the view that praying for sinning believers is unimportant or meritless. James classifies such supplications as effective. The term effective, energio, is used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' work of miraculous powers. Matthew 12, or excuse me, Matthew 14, verse 2. That is why miraculous powers are at work, energio, in him. Hence, James states that these supplications for sinning believers are miraculous. That is, these supplications accomplish what they set out to do, rescue believers from their sin. However, not all supplications are miraculous. 
Only those supplications offered by a righteous man accomplish much. So who are the righteous? The term righteous, the chaos, refers to those individuals who conform to God's law without failure. The righteous are those who hear and heed God's words. And the supplication of those who actively hear and, God's, hear and heed God's word accomplish much. The verb accomplish, skuo, means to have ability or power. And much, polus, refers to a greater degree. That, thus, the supplications of the righteous are greatly powerful and as such can accomplish the miraculous. Again, in this case, the miraculous is setting a believer free from sin. Now, to support his claim, James turns again to the Old Testament. He sets forth Elijah the prophet as the example of a righteous man whose prayers were miraculous. Of all the examples of Elijah to choose from, James focuses upon his prayers to withhold rain and then send rain as found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. His prayer to withhold rain resulted in the land being fruitless. However, when he prayed for rain, the land again became fruitful. James' choice is not random. He sets forth this illustration to demonstrate that in the same way prayer restored the dead land and made it fruitful, so prayer can also restore sinning believers and make them fruitful. As well, we should consider that Elijah prayed both a negative and positive prayer. He prayed first that it would not rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed that it would rain. My friends, we can do the same. For example, we can pray that God would withhold, withhold peace from the sinning believer until he repents. And then pray that God would grant him peace when he does repent. Now some might protest and say, Well, Elijah was a prophet of God. I'm no prophet and therefore I do not expect my prayers to accomplish anything. To this point, James counters, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. A nature like ours, homeopathies, suggests that Elijah's exact nature and weaknesses characterize every other believer. Thus, whatever Elijah accomplished in prayer, asked according to God's will, every believer can do according to God's will. That is, God, it is God's will for believers to overcome sin then it stands to reason that if believers who are hearing and heeding God's word would pray for those believers struggling with sin, then those who are sinning would overcome their sin. Now, what if supplications have been made for a sinning believer and no change has occurred? First, those praying ought to examine themselves to be sure they're righteous. And if they are righteous, then those praying must conclude that the one for whom they are praying is not a believer and change the emphasis of their prayer. For such a one pray that he or she might come to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And so with James' admonitions, we now know when to pray. Pray in times of suffering. Pray in times of sickness. Pray in times of sinning. Individually and collectively, we need to be praying for one another. Instead of grumbling about one another or gossiping to one another, we ought to be praying for one another. We ought to be praying for relief, for encouragement, for deliverance, for grace, for healing, for forgiveness, just to name a few. And when God answers, and He will, let us be sure to praise Him privately and publicly. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we ask You, Lord, to help us in the realm of prayer. Most believers know all about the how to pray. Very few actually do the hard work of praying. Oh, we're quick to shoot up prayers when we need something. We're, we're quick to rub that lamp like you're some genie. 
But I pray, Lord, that we would have prayer that's modeled, patterned after the example that your son gave us. As well, Lord, I pray that you would teach us when to pray. Of course, we know that we're to be praying at all times. We're to pray without ceasing. But particularly, we need to be praying in times of suffering. We need to be praying in times of sickness. We need to be praying in times of sinning. And Father, it's not necessarily us praying for ourselves, but that we need to be praying for one another in those times. Father, in particular, I pray if there are those who are sinning, we want to commit them to you, Lord. We want to pray that you might, that you might give victory to them. And Father, I pray that if there are those who we've been praying for, we've been praying that, uh, Lord, you would release them from their sinning. If it has not occurred yet, then perhaps, Father, prevention, we need to change our prayer. And we need to start praying for their salvation. And so, Father, we commit those ones to you. Help us, Lord. Help us to be so mindful of one another that we'd be quick to pray rather than grumble or gossip. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.